Welcome to the main event. Let's get ready to rumble! I have always wanted to start a sermon that way. That's been my dream. Let's get ready to rumble. I love it. Love that. All right. <laughs> All right. Obviously, we're going to talk about something very interesting this morning. And uh, I appreciate Brian lending me this, these gloves. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been into boxing. Uh, I grew up, I was a, kind of a fan, but I was back... Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, uh, George Foreman, those kind of days. And I, some of you go back way back, you know, back when they just fist the cuff kind of stuff. Some of you are kind of old, I know, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, <laughs> but I, I remember boxing. Well, now it's actually transformed. They still box, but now they've got this. This is a little different. If you haven't watched the MMA, have you ever seen that? It takes it to a whole different level or a whole different kind of, I mean, you're not just watching with somebody with gloves on, you're watching their knees and their feet and wrestling moves and all this. So, but it's still, it's a, it's a contact sport, literally, all right? And it's about wrestling, bringing someone to submission or knocking them out. I don't know how many of you have ever been into that. Some of you go, oh, I hate that stuff. It's a stupid sport, you know, just knocks people's brains out, all those kind of things. I don't know where you are. Some of you might even be pacifists. That might where you consider yourself. But here's what I know today. The kind of fighting we're going to talk about today is a fight that I think everyone in this room has done at some point in your life. And perhaps it's a kind of fight that you are doing right now with your life. It's a kind of fight that I think as we, as we look at this, it's a wrestling move or it's a fight that, and these gloves are harder to get off than I thought they would be. <laughs> I may have to keep these on the whole sermon. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm wrestling with my glove. But anyway, we're going to talk about a fight today that I think every one of us is going to be able to relate to. In fact, I, we're, going to, we're going to come back to this story eventually, but I want to re read you one verse, and it's found, we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter number 32 today. It's page 23 in your storybook if you brought that with you. But there's one verse that I want you to just to look at, and then we're going we're gonna to come back, hit some history. But here's where it starts. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. We're going to leave these gloves hanging here just as a reminder of where we're going today. But I want us to remember that, that, particular, that particular instance, and we're going to come back and get to it. So let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's get some background, some understanding of where we are. We are in the second... Uh, Second chapter of the story, we're talking about what God's doing. But remember, we've talked about a couple of things that we keep reminding ourselves in, that there is an upper story in God's Bible. There is a story that God has, uh, God's plan, God's design, man can't shake it, man can't stop it, God's working behind the scenes. There is an upper story to everything. And from that upper story, what we learned last week is from the upper story, God creates or created a lower story. And that lower story is where we are, the human experience, the human life. 
And early on in that lower story, though it started off pretty much running uh, parallel, the, the man in the lower story took a dive pretty quickly, right? And in the lower story, man, uh, though given the option, chose to, to stand up and, and say, I really am not into God's vision and chose to go his own way. And, and in that, man fell as we talked. So we have the creation, we have the fall of man. And in that fall, man in his choices, things, things deteriorate quickly. Death comes, pain comes, all of those things. But it's even more than just the results of the garden is the fact that from then on, the DNA that was passed on from Adam and Eve to the others not only included hair color and, and uh, looks and all that, it also included this DNA of sin. And so from the human race from that point on inherited this this inclination and this choice to sin. And that becomes what what then uh, it typifies what man is going to be from that point on. But we also know very early in the story is that from an upper story perspective, God is going to go to great lengths to bring us back. Man fell, but man was his pinnacle, his creative masterpiece. And even though man has fallen, he is going to do so much to do to get him back. So the upper story is still going on. It hasn't stopped just because of man's sin. And that's we come to chapter number two today of the story where God is going to build a nation. The way that God planned, and what you're going to learn through these, if you've been reading, and I, I know many of you have, and I heard even today some of you are doing an audio book, fantastic. Whatever it is to keep you reading and growing in this, this story, I think you're going to get a great picture. And what we know, first of all, is in order for God to do his plan to get us back, which is the, what the lion's share of what the Bible is about, he's going to do it through a nation. And he's going to build this nation through, he's going to start it with a family. And that's where we are today, the starting of this, this family. It will ultimately come through a family line. And in this family line, he's going to create then his plan to bring us back. What we learn in the chapter two is there, uh, we have what we call the patriarchs, the three founding fathers, if you would, of this family that God is creating. And their names, you might recognize them. Father Abraham, right? Had many sons. Okay, the father Abraham, his miraculous son Isaac, and then Isaac's son, uh, Jacob. And these become the, the, the uh, patriarchs, the founders of this family that God is going to use to bring us back. Now, what's interesting, that, that would kind of, if you want to think about it, when we go back to American history, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, some of those names, those become names that are synonymous when the, with the founding of our country. All right, so with the founding of God's salvation process, there's those three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, you go through the scriptures, you're going to see those three, that the trio of those three mentioned often together when it talks about the nation and how God blesses and what God does. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they become the founders of this family that God has for us. Now, with each one of those, he gave specific promise of what he was going to do, and they're very similar in the way he worded them. Let me start with Abraham. In chapter 12, when he first started this, he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And he uses words like uh, greater than the sands and the seashore and all these kind of things. And then he makes this statement, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I want you to remember that. Because when we move then to his son Isaac, the, the miracle boy, when he comes along, he also promises you'll be a great nation and there'll be many in your, in your lineage. But he says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Are you noticing a theme there? He's not only blessing them, but understand this is a, this is a plan to bring all of humanity back. So all of the nations are going to be blessed through this family. 
through Abraham, through Isaac. It's going to be something that covers all the nations that are coming after them. Now, if we stop here for a second with these two, these first two choices, uh, you might say they're a little dubious, at least from a lower story perspective, okay? Because Abraham, when God tells him about this, Abraham is already 70 years old, and his wife is 60 years old, and, and she's not able to have children. And it's going to be 30 years before she has a child. You're doing the math here? Okay, this doesn't seem like a great start, God. There could have been somebody else you could have picked. Well, Isaac, Isaac doesn't get married until he's 60, and it takes them 19 years to have a child after that. So it's like, God, you could have chosen some, you know, these weren't the best picks in the lottery, right? Okay, these could have, we could have done something different, but this was God's choice for the nation that he's going to bring. Well, then we come to the third guy. His name is Jacob. And it says of Jacob, he, he says all, he talks about how he's going to bless him with all it. But then notice again, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Again, you're going to be a great nation, yes, but it's more than just you being a nation and you having a country. All the world is going to be affected by you. This is how God's plan takes off, how it gets its start. Now, here's what's interesting. Although Abraham was the founding father, he was, he was the big kahuna. Everyone, we know about Abraham. The Jews point back to Abraham. We get that. He was a great man of faith. Nothing at all taken away from him. Isaac, surprisingly enough to me, although he was the miracle son, his mom was 90. His dad was 100 when he was born, right? He was the miracle then. And then there was another time when he was almost killed by God's command and God, re, uh, God kept him from being killed. So that twice now, he's, his life is a miracle. And yet, Isaac's the least mentioned of all of the three throughout the scriptures. Just an interesting tidbit. But when you come to Jacob, Jacob is the one that God spares or spends the most ink on throughout the scriptures. He's the one who we're, he's going to talk about and it comes back and refers to most often. For instance, almost half of the book of Genesis is about, about Jacob or his, his family or about the time in which he lived. Starting in chapter 25, clear to the end of Genesis. Almost half of Genesis... Jacob has 12 sons who become, if you're familiar with this, and we'll get into it later, become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is significant. And we also know that throughout the Bible, Jacob's name becomes synonymous with the people themselves. In fact, there are several references just to, just to the fact that when it talks about the people, he says, and the God of Jacob. And we're going to celebrate the God of Jacob. So Jacob becomes the, the name that is most often referred to when we talk about, the, about the, uh, the people of Israel. But just like Abraham and Isaac being a little questionable in the choice, if you were to look at Jacob's life, and we're going to look at it a little bit today, he might not have been the one you would have chosen if you'd have known him. He doesn't seem to be the, the top notch of the one being the one that's going to be God's delivering uh, family throughout history. So we're going to take a lower story pick, uh, look at, at Jacob's life today for a little bit and make some observations about Jacob himself. So follow me if you would back. We'll go back to chapter 25. This isn't in your storybook, but if you have your Bible, it's chapter number 25. And we get where Jacob started. And, and let me just throw out some, some thoughts about Jacob. First thought is this. Jacob was known from the very beginning as a fighter as a struggler. That's, that's one of the things that Jacob was known for. Let me go back and read part of the story. Chapter 25, in verse number 21, it, this is where it starts with Jacob. Uh, in chapter 25, we, we hear how that uh, the Lord, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered her prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. 
And verse 22 says, the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Let's stop right there. She has, she, we're going to find out she has twins in, in her womb, and, and these, the Bible, the, the, depending on your version, the babies jostled, the babies struggled within her. This was, this was not just normal babies moving around and kicking because it actually brought, drove her to prayer. There's something going on in here, God. Um, in fact, Jewish mythology, I guess you could say, or Jewish legend actually says that the, the twins were trying to kill each other inside her womb. I don't know. Some of you had twins or kids. They tried to kill each other outside the womb, all right? But this, it was that kind of a force. Something was going on in there to the point where she said, God, what is this? Let's keep reading because I want you to catch this next verse. Here's what the Lord said. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. We got two different nations developing here, two different strong nations. And our peop uh, one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And when the time came to get her, for her to give birth, there were twin bo uh, boys in her womb. Two nations. But I want you to notice that last prophecy because it's very significant. The older is going to serve the younger. Now, that's a prophecy from God before the babies are ever born while they're trying to kill each other inside the womb. That's God's picture to her, a prophecy for her. So let's keep going. Verse 25, because I think this is kind of humorous. The first one came out, uh, the first one that came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. He was red and hairy. That's how it's described. Okay, he probably wouldn't win the cutest baby of the, of the world award, okay? Kind of this idea. His name Esau literally means hairy. He, he was, that's what it means, all right? He was prematurely, he had an effective, he was a red woolen sweater, okay? That was what, his baby came out as a red woolen sweater. And in fact, his nation that's going to develop is called Edom, which we'll hear later on in the story. And the word Edom means red. Okay, so we have a red, hairy guy coming out of this. Uh, uh, that's how he's, he's seen. Then the story goes on. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now we have Jacob grasping onto Harry's heel. Okay, uh, Jacob's grasping onto to Esau's heel. And, and, he's, and as he comes out, so we don't even have time between. I mean, they come out together with one holding on to the other's heel as it comes. And that becomes his name. Literally, Jacob means heel grabber in very simple terms. He's a heel grabber. And that suggests a couple of things. Number one, it suggests this, that from the very beginning, Jacob was a fighter. He was, the, the word understand it means he wanted to trip them up. He wanted to wrestle. He wanted to struggle. He was competitive. He wanted to win at all costs. And he was, even though he couldn't be first out, he was going to be as close as he could. And he was grabbing on with everything he could. That's why he was named Jacob. But this weird heel grabber also suggests something else. And that's the thought of Jacob I want you to get. Jacob, secondly, was also known from the beginning as a deceiver. That idea of a heel grabber is a picture in the, in, in the words written as one who, it's more than competition, it's one that's going to win no matter what. He's going to win the contest, and he's going to do it by whatever way, and, and he will be great at deceiving, he's a schemer, he's a manipulator, and boy, did Jacob live up to his name. In all of those things, Jacob was exactly what he said. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, their family, this starts here. From the very beginning, even back in Abraham, this family, these three patriarchs, 
put new meaning to the word dysfunctional in a lot of ways, okay? And one of the first things we see in this, this idea of Jacob and Esau is that they were, there was extreme uh, favoritism that was shown. Jacob, the Bible says that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. So in other words, they, they, they had this separate, and I love this son, you love that son. Jacob, uh, uh, Esau was a hunter, he was an outdoorsman. Mr. Red Harry Sweater was the one that liked to go out into the woods and hunt. Jacob was a domestic, he was a chef, he liked to stay at home with, with Rebecca. And so we have these two separate ideas of, of who the men were. But from, from the very beginning, the first act that we see Jacob do outside of the womb Outside of, of his mother, the first thing we see as you go down in this chapter, in chapter 25, is he manipulates. He tricks his brother Esau into actually selling his birthright, what he deserved for being the actual first one out of the womb. He sells his birthright for a, for a bowl of stew. So from the very beginning, Jacob is doing what his name says. He's, he's deceiving. He's trying to get his way, trying to get himself better in whatever way possible. But probably the ultimate deception comes in chapter 27 when Jacob, with the help of his mother, actually deceives, their fa deceives the father, Isaac. Isaac's blind by this time. He can't really see. So he deceives him to get the fatherly family blessing from Isaac. He deceives Isaac himself. In fact, Isaac asks him point blank. He said, who are you? What is your name? And Jacob lies and said, I am your son Esau. Point blank lies to his father. And his father could, couldn't see. He believed that everything, all the surroundings were together. And he believed him and he gave him the blessing that should have gone to Esau. Now here's an interesting point. Here's, what do you, how do you think Esau responds to this? Chapter 27, verse 36. Look at Esau's response. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? That old heel grabber. That the schemer, that deceitful guy, this is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Jacob was known as a fighter and as a deceiver from the very beginning. A couple verses down, we get a little bit more into the, the idea of what Esau said. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Now notice this, he had said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. In fact, my father, I think, is about to die. Look, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau is not at all happy with Mr. Schemer. Mr. He he's been grabbing my heels literally since the day we were born, and, and I've had enough of it, and I'm going to take him out. Well, Jacob and his mom take the threat from Red Harry guy seriously, right? And, they, and so they, they make a story. Jacob's not yet married yet. He's 40, hasn't had, not married yet. So they make a story. They send him away to relatives. But literally, he is running for his life. He runs for his life, gets far enough away where Esau is kind of out of Esau's reach. He goes to his family. And, and the story of his deception keeps on. But I find this kind of interesting. He moves in with a guy named Laban, which happens to be his uncle. And he has met somebody who's about as deceptive as he is. And so for the next 20 years, they have this cat and mouse game of who's going who's gonna to up who. He, he got his deception from his mom's side. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But he got his deception from, from uncle. And, and this, con, this dysfunctional family continues. But in this story, the dysfunction goes with a point where now he has four wives, 11 boys. And now the story takes a change. And here's the third thing I want you to get. Jacob is called to stop running and to face his past. 
Here's what God says to Jacob in chapter 31 and verse 3. He said, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Now that sounds all right. I mean, okay, I get to go home now. But remember, he's burned some bridges before all this happens. He's made some people mad before all this happens. He has has literally done some things that seem almost irreparable. You see, when Jacob left, and he actually says this in chapter 32, I I left alone. I I had nothing but my shepherd's stick. That's all I had when I left this place. But now, over the course of 20 years, God has given him a family. God has blessed him. He not not only has kids and he has wives, but he also has lots of stuff. He has lots of animals. God has blessed him in incredible ways. And, but now he's headed back, and now we're to chapter 32, and we're about to where we started this story today. In chapter 32, as he went on his way, Jacob thinks, and, and with rightly so, I wonder how Esau is going to react to me coming back home. The last thing he heard Esau say was, when dad dies, you're dead. That's the last thing he heard. He's been gone for 20 years, but now he wonders, I wonder you know, what, what the red hairy one's going to think of me now. When I left, he said I was dead meat. I wonder what's going to happen as I come back. So here's what Jacob does. He sends out a group of messengers to meet Esau, to tell him that Jacob's coming, and just to kind of get a a hint of how Esau might react. And here it is in verse uh, 6 of chapter 32. The guys came back, and this is what they said. When we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. What would you think? Based on what the last thing you heard Esau say to you, now you come back after 20 years and he's bringing 400 men with him. Between the history of the hero, and Jacob freaks. That's basically, it's not in the Bible, but that's basically it. Jacob freaks at this point. Now, my personal opinion, it's a personal opinion. I think Esau was messing with Jacob. Just my personal opinion. Because he knew what Jacob was thinking and he doesn't give the guys anything to go with. He just comes with this army of men. The reason I think that's, that's interesting, because I, I did that once. I think it's funny, okay? It was funny to me, at least, all right? When we got married, right here on this stage, it looked a little different. We got married. When we went to light our unity candle, it wouldn't light. Because someone in our wedding party, I won't mention any names, but she's a sister-in-law that lives in Chicago, but our, <laughs> someone had snipped the wick on our unity candle so it wouldn't light, Okay? And it was all funny and laughing, okay? And, so, and we found out who it was, and everybody thought it was funny. But here's the ironic twist. Guess who performed the wedding of my sister-in-law? <laughs> my first wedding happened to be my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. So I didn't say anything. She would ask me, oh, what are you going to do? And I just smile because I'm holding all the cards. So they stand before me, and they, and, but this is what we found out. Truth is, I didn't do anything. I just let him, the, suffer, the sweat was all that was needed. But when we got done, we found out that she had hidden candles all over the stage. There was at least four or five different candles because if that one was cut, she knew where another one was. And if I got to that one, there was another. That was better than even doing anything, right? Just messing with him. And that's what I think, and we'll find out. I think Esau, and his, but whether he was or not, here we have Jacob. All he can think of is there's 400 men coming with, with my brother. So in fear, he starts putting the plan in place. Immediately, he divides it in his, all of his household into two camps, and his thought was if he fights with one camp, at least the second camp, hopefully some of them can get away. 
That's his first thought. Second thing is, he goes to God in prayer, which is not a bad thing at all. He says, God, listen, um, you, you took me where you want me, and now you told me to come back, and this doesn't look too good, God. You're going to have to help me here. But then he moves on into this extremely, Jacob the schemer comes back. Because the next verses talk about how he then took the family and, he, and he, would, he would take the herds and he gave a gift to Esau. And then there was another gift and there was five different herds of gifts that were wanting to, all to appease Esau. And he got into this great expensive extravagant scheme trying to keep himself alive. And that's when we come to our story today. Chapter 32, verse number 22 is the main event. This is what's going to happen in this story, and it's on chapter, it's page 23 of your, of your storybooks if you want to follow there. But here's how the story goes. That night, Jacob got up, that night that he, all this was happening, he got up, took his wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Let me stop right there. Let's just get a picture of what's happened. Just before that, he had already separated the family, he'd put this thing into place, and it seems as if now he, he, go, he tries to bed down for the night, but it seems to indicate that he couldn't sleep. <laughs> go figure, right? He's thinking he's going to be taken out the next day, so he couldn't sleep. So in the middle of the night, it says that night, he gets up, he gets the rest of his family up, he moves them across the, the creek bed to, to get ready for the next morning, and he comes across, and for the first time in a long time, he sets alone. And that's a very dramatic picture. Of all, now he's got nobody to talk to but himself. He's got his head and everything he's thinking, and he's thinking past of all that's happened in the past and all that could be happening now. He's alone, and it's interesting is that's the way he left. He's back now the same way he was when he left. He's all alone. There's nothing around him at this point. And at that point, we have a man that comes and wrestles with him. And let me go on with the story. And when the man saw they could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And verse 32 says this, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched by the man. All right, let's walk through this story. I, 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 we have no reason to believe that this is not a literal event. Some people try to say, well, this was a dream or a vision. I, I don't think so. And let me give you some reasons why. Jacob had had dreams before. We have dreams of other people in the Bible, and they're always very specific how they're introduced. We see nothing that indicates a dream here. Nothing that indicates that this was anything like that. And if this was a dream, it's a pretty crazy dream, right? He wakes up with a limp from this dream. Now, now my wife has crazy dreams. I don't even remember my dreams. She has crazy dreams once in a while, and she's actually woken up mad at me before because of a dream that she had. I can't believe you did that. And she may have hit me in her sleep one night because of her dream. That's just, but to have a dream and to wake up then with a physical ailment, that's quite a dream, right? So I don't think it was a dream. And, and to, even to top that off, if you notice that last verse, the Jewish custom 
And if you will Google, this is still a custom to this day, if you're a kosher Jew, that there's a certain tendon of an animal that they won't eat. And so either they won't eat the hinder part of an animal because they don't want to even mess with it, or they have specific butchers that will take out that piece just to make sure they don't eat it. To 2016. So to say that this was a dream, there's, some, there's so much more than this. This is a literal event that happens in his life. But I want you to also notice the other person in this wrestling match. Who is this man that Jacob is wrestling with? Suggestions? Well, Maybe it was just some random robber, right? Jacob's alone, he's a rich guy, and this guy has seen all the stuff, so when it gets dark, he attacks him, and they have this fight. Some of you suggested maybe it was Esau <laughs> sneaking up and saying, I'm just going to beat the daylights out of this guy before he gets across. That's a possibility. The Bible doesn't give us his name. However, Jacob later gives us a specific of who he believed he was fighting against. In fact, when he gets to the end, he, he actually says that he has seen the face of God and lived to tell about it. Scholars call this, and you can write this down if you like, a theophany. That simply means a physical, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament. An appearance of God who, who is in spirit, but he can do whatever he wants, and he comes in a spiritual being. So literally what Jacob tells us is he was wrestling with God. This was not just a man that he was wrestling with, but God had come in a human form and he was wrestling with God. Now just think about that for a minute. Jacob is physically, you want to talk about interse intersecting the upper story and the lower story? <laughs> you can't get much more intersecting than that when God actually comes in a human form and wrestles fist to cuff with his servant Jacob. What we also know, this story literally becomes a, not only a literal event, but it becomes a parable that, that God uses to teach people. In fact, here's how it's described in the, in the prophet Hosea. Listen to this. Hosea 12 says, In the womb he, Jacob, grasped his brother's heel. Now notice this last part. And as a man, he struggled with God. I couldn't help but read that verse, put it down, and think. I wonder how many times I've struggled with God. How many times have I actually been in a struggle, a fight, a wrestling match with God himself? Now, let me be clear about something. This isn't, there, there is another wrestling spiritually that the Bible speaks of. And, and I'll tell you what it is. Ephesians chapter 6 Paul talks about a spiritual battle that's around us every day. And here's how he said it. He said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's what we know as believers. We know that on a daily basis, there is an enemy that wants to destroy us. He is out to not just, you know, bother us, but actually to take us out, to destroy us in whatever possible way. If he can't get our soul, he wants to take and ruin our effectiveness, our testimony, our, our joy in Christ. He wants to destroy us. And so we're told to fight the good fight, to be strong and courageous, to stand firm. We're told all those things. That's a fight that happens on a continuing basis of someone who's trying to destroy us. But this isn't the same. This isn't a wrestling match with someone trying to destroy Jacob. This is a wrestling match with someone who wants the best for Jacob, that wants good for Jacob. And yet Jacob finds himself wrestling, struggling with this one who actually wants his best. And yet he's, he's gone to battle with God himself. 
Parents, maybe you can identify with this. Parents of small kids, let me just name a couple of scenarios. Car seats, coats, eating your veggies, going to bed at night. Have you ever had a struggling match with a toddler in any of those four situations? And here's a toddler who you want their best. Being in a car seat is their best interest. Having a coat on when it's zero degrees is their best interest. Eating their veggies is in their best interest. Going to bed is something that's good for them, and they will fight and claw with everything they have not to do those things. Am I correct, parents? Come on, help me out. Am I, am I right? The thing that my kids did that was the worst is we called it the dead man flop. You seen that? When you go to pick them up and they just do this the limp thing, and then it takes three men and a crane to get them up. I mean, it's incredible the strength of these kids when they go in this. They're fighting something that's actually good for them. Even though you have their best interest in mind, they're fighting you with everything they have. That's the description of Jacob and this wrestling match with God. God had every good intention for Jacob, but Jacob struggled, fought with God. What we're going to find in this lower story is this becomes pretty common. It becomes a common thing for the lower story human experience for people to fight God. Even though God has their best interest in mind, it becomes, it becomes something very, very common. Because what we realize is we as humans, for one, we have serious trust issues. And so we don't know if we can trust this God. So we fight what he tells us to do. We also know that not only trust issues, but sometimes we just don't like the idea of someone telling us what to do. And so we struggle with God. Or we come back to that where I want to be in control. I want to say I'm in charge. And so to let God have control, we end up struggling. We end up fighting with God. It becomes common throughout the Bible. You're going to see it from, from this point on. You're going to see it and you can begin to understand. This is a person struggling with what God wants. And you're going to see that Old Testament. You're going to see that New Testament. We struggle. We, we fight with God. In fact, here's how Isaiah described it. Isaiah 45, 9. Listen to this. But doom to you who fight your maker. You put, you're a pot at odds with the potter. Does the clay talk back to the potter? Says, what are you doing? What clumsy fig fingers you have. How ludicrous for us as a clay pot to look into the eyes of the maker and say, you're not doing this right. In fact, you're clumsy. I think you made a mistake in my... How silly for us as a pot to argue with the potter, the one who has made us. But that's what we do. It's pr pretty much repeated in every lower story, that we're gonna, lower story event that we're going to look at. You're going to see this repeated over and over, and it's still repeated to 2016. We as humans have the tendency to fight with God. There, there's a New Testament example, a guy by the name of Saul, and literally, you want to talk about fighting God? He literally was fighting God. He was fighting and literally was trying, was persecuting the church that Jesus started. That was his fighting motif. I mean, he was literally going after God and his church, thinking he had it all together, but he was literally fighting God. But God stops him in his tracks. He turns him around. And I want you to hear how Jesus responds to Saul. Listen to this, Acts chapter 9. And he... Uh, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice this last phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were instruments of, 
uh, that, that a farmer would use, and they're still using some degree. They have a little stick on the end, a little something to get the, the, the animal's attention. It doesn't hurt them. It's not cruel, but it, it's not comfortable either. It's not pleasing. It's trying to move them in a direction that maybe they didn't want to go. And he's saying, Saul, it, it's kind of tough to fight against me, isn't it? You're going to find that this is a tough battle to come against me. And what we have, folks, and, and what's interesting about Saul Saul was one who didn't even realize his fight. He believed in God, but he would, not, he would not allow himself to believe and to follow Jesus. And so this is his go that God is saying, but I am real. Let's go back to Jacob. In Jacob's case, he has been fighting man since literal birth, and he's been fighting God. He wanted his way. He wanted his life to be in control of him. He's manipulated, he's schemed, he's lied, he's done whatever he could to take control of the situation. Rather than trust God, because God had given him a promise, rather than trust him, he keeps coming up with his own ways to make it all right, to, to go past and say, God, you don't got this, so I'll take care of it. He steals a birthright. He does all the... And remember, remember I told you just to keep in mind that promise that Rebecca was given before he was born? She was told that the older will serve the younger. In other words, Jacob's going to be the one in charge. They knew that before he was born. I guarantee you that his mother had told him that, but he still felt like, you know what? I've got to give God a hand here. I've got to scheme. I've got to lie. I've got to manipulate. I've got to make it happen. And he had to be in control. In fact, just a, a side note, in chapter 28, Verse 20 and 21, Jacob actually goes to God before everything, you know, part of this journey, and he actually gives God, he said, God, I'm going to make a bargain with you. I will do A, B, C, and D if you will do this. Anybody ever been there? Ever bargained with God? God, if you will just heal me, if you'll just take care of this, I will serve you forever. Ever tried to bargain with God? You know what that is? That's you trying to be in control of your life rather than trusting the potter, the one who loves you and he cares for you. So we're back in this chapter, chapter 31. Jacob's back to his old ways. He's back to doing things the ways he always has. Remember, God told him, chapter 31, verse 3, go and I will be with you. Do you remember that verse? He said, go, Jacob, do this and I will be with you. That's a promise, Jacob. I'm going to take care of you. But what does Jacob does? Well, he, he connives this expensive, extravagant plan to save himself because he's still not trusting God. He still, up to this point, is still fighting who God was. Here's what's ironic about it, and you read it further in the story. Those 400 men that, Je that Esau brought, he actually brought them to protect Jacob and his family. God was actually going to use those 400 men to help him do what he's, I will be with you, and he actually was bringing 400 armed men to protect them. And Jacob thought, oh, it's all over. I've got to make a scheme. I've got to do my thing. I've got to be in control. And all he was doing was fighting so let's stop, take a breath, and let's apply this for a moment. In what ways am I currently wrestling, struggling with God? What, what would you say to that? Maybe it's questions and doubts that you have about, you know, you, you've heard about God and truth, and you're kind of like Saul, I'm not sure that I can buy into this, and and, and I've got to have all my answers, got to have all my ducks in a row before I can trust this thing and step out in this thing of faith. Here's the thing. God loves questions, and his doubts and questions are not offensive to God unless they stop you from trusting him. Because here's what you're going to have to know. God may answer many of your questions, but he doesn't promise he's going to answer them all, at least to the way that you like them. So are you going to trust him anyway? Maybe it's your doubts. Maybe it's your past. 
Maybe it's your past failures. Maybe it's your past sins, your past mistakes. And, and you may even feel like God, you've gone too far. God truly won't forgive you or he can't forgive you or there's no path or you've just got too much baggage, too much junk. Maybe it's just past bondage. You've been hurt by someone and you're carrying bitterness and you just can't get past that and you get to a point and God asks you and, and you stop right there because you're still struggling over letting God have that and letting God, or maybe it's even the past relationships. Esau and Jacob, part of the thing that God was doing is bringing these two brothers back together. And that's a fight. That's a struggle. One has hurt the other. They both hurt each other. And to reconcile this, I don't know, what is it that's stopping you? What are you struggling with God? Maybe it's a fear, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of being vulnerable and being found out. What is it that you're struggling with God over? What is it that's stopping you from taking this step to, to trust and obey, to truly give yourself completely to him? I want to trust him, but I'm still holding on. Well, ding, ding. The main event is still going on in your life. You still got the gloves on. God, you may be big, but you're not big enough for this. I've still got to help. What is it that's stopping you? Let, let's wrap up this story of Jacob. And, and let me just share three things that I learned about Jacob's main event that I want us to apply. If we're going to understand fighting with God, let's understand these three things. Number one is this. When you wrestle with God, you will not win. Please understand, you don't have a chance at this one. This fight is not one that's ultimately going to go in your favor. You're fighting. Now, it's interesting in this passage where it says, a man wrestled with him, with Jacob, not the other way around. Now, maybe that's not a big thing, but, but I think it is significant that it seems to suggest that God actually initiated this wrestling match, that God, the man, came and, and, and started this, this uh, fight with Jacob. Because here's what you understand. Sometimes we are in this fight and we don't even acknowledge it. We don't even realize it. We're doing these things and we're going on. And one of the biggest problems that I think God has in our lives is just getting us to stop and be quiet long enough so we'll listen to him. And so God will do what he has to do to get us to that point of aloneness where all we, where it just, we finally will listen to his voice and he can do it through a lot of ways. It could be a, an unexpected illness. It could be a pink slip. It could be a it could be a, a, a crisis in our life. It could be something that, that we don't understand why this is happening and doesn't seem fair. And God's saying, dude, we're, we've been fighting this time and I'm trying to get you to see that this, you need to listen to my voice. You need to listen. If you go to verse 25, it, it, the, the Bible says this. He says that, uh, that when the man touched, uh, he could not overpower him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now understand, it wasn't that Jacob was, was strong enough to overpower God. It was God literally, and this is what it shows us, God at any time could have pinned Jacob. Jacob God wasn't waiting to, to, he was just waiting to see if Jacob would ever surrender to this thing because when it came down to it and the day starting to break, God just simply reaches in and touches the socket of his hip and immediately the fight's over. He touches the socket, wrenches his hip out of socket, rearranges those things so that we're going to find he never walks again in the same way. He wrenches his socket in that moment, and, and Jacob realizes who's in charge. Why there? Why did he do that? Well, I don't know all the reasons, but it's possible that the, from the hip socket and this muscle, the thigh, is the biggest, strongest in our bodies. 
So maybe he's trying to get to Jacob at the very heart, the thing that he's his most strength and show him, Jacob, you can't do this anymore. You got to surrender to me. And God says, I can do what I want, but I want you to realize that you need me. <laughs> so that doesn't seem fair, does it? God cheated. God brings something in our life to get, well, that's not fair, God. That's not, you can't, that you shouldn't be able to do that to me. God is, when, when God does some things in our life and we think he is not fair, and that's our question, here's what God will remind us. Listen, he'll remind us of how much he loves you. That never goes away. But then he'll also remind us that he's not playing by our rules. He's in the upper story knowing what's best for his glory and he knows what's best for you. And we have to trust him. My wife has a book sitting around the house right now that she's reading, and the title is this, God is Just Not Fair. What I love about the title is you can read it a couple different ways. God is just not fair. We've said that sometimes, don't we? God, you're just not fair. Or you can read it this way, God is just not fair. What we see as fair, God sees as his justice. He always has our best, our right in mind but we have to trust him. We have to be willing to surrender. And he got Jacob's attention. You're never going to win this fight. Here's the second thing I learned. When you can't fight any longer, just hold on. When you're done fighting and you still don't know what to do, hold on. Here's what happened in the story, verse 26. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you break me. I like this part because at this point, Jacob's humble. Jacob's alert. Jacob's literally broken now. He is at a point where he has no other choice but to hold on for dear life. He has no other choice but to say, God, I can't even stand up without you at this point. I am completely dependent on you, and I'm just going to hold on until you bless me. Now Jacob's listening. Now God's got his attention. Now Jacob is willing to do what, what he needs to do. Up to this point, Jacob's been clever. He's had his abilities. He's been able to scheme and to get through life. Suddenly, he has nothing to do but hold on. Up to this point, Jacob's been in control, or so he thinks. He's got everything under control, and it's finally, for the first time, he can't even move. He says, I just can't do anything but hold on, but I am going to hold on until you bless me. I realize I'm not in control God, I need, if I don't come out of here with a blessing from you, I can't go on. At that point, when you feel weak and you feel like you're not going to make it, and just hold on and say, God, I love you and I trust you. And I'm just going to hold on until I, until I sense your touch in my life. I can't do this without you. Third thing is this. In order to truly win, you have to lose. That's a biblical principle that we're going to see upper and lower story. Verse 27 and 28, I'll remind you of those verses. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. God does something interesting here. He asks Jacob a question. But remember, this is a principle that you probably already got, but when God asks a question, it's not because he needs information. God knows it all. So he's not asking this for his purpose. It wasn't the man needed this answer. He needed Jacob to understand his answer. In fact, the question basically could be written this way. Jacob, do you know who you really are? Jacob, do you recognize who you really are? If you remember, the last time we see Jacob being asked this question, what is your name? What did Jacob say? He lied to his father and said, I am Esau. 
in his scheming ways. Well, now he has to come to grips with who he really is. And he says it out loud, I am Jacob. 20 years after all that started, now he's not seeking a blessing from his father. He's seeking a blessing from his heavenly father. And he says, you know me, I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. I'm the schemer. I'm the liar. I'm the manipulator. That's who I am. I, I get that, God. I finally recognize who I am as I stand in front of you. It's basically an admission, an acknowledgement of who he is. And he had to come to this before God could begin to change him into who he wanted him to be. He had to realize who he was. Let me ask you that question. Who are you? What is your real name? Until we're willing to admit our need and our, our weaknesses, we're not going to find the healing we need in our life. I am greed. I am pride. I am unfaithful. I am, I am dependent upon myself. I am all of these. I am a liar. I'm a manipulator. Whatever it is, we come to the point that we can admit, God, I get it. Here I am. I come weak before you, and I recognize my need, and I understand, and then I need you to start me brand new. And that's exactly what God does for Jacob. Look at the verse. He says he changed his name to Israel. Does that sound familiar? That's the nation that we still know, that little tiny nation that has all, all the world's eyes on it most of the time. That's the nation of Israel. And this is where its name started. But the, the name literally means Prince of God. It's actually two words. One, the first word, Israel, is the, is the idea of something to fight, to struggle, to rule. And then the last two letters, L, is another name for the word God. So it means either to struggle with God, to, to rule with God, Prince of God, but it very literally could simply mean God rules. God is in charge. Well, that's a big difference, isn't it? Jacob's schemer to God is in control. Jacob trying to control to God is in control. God has changed him through this experience. Jesus told us this in the New Testament, Matthew chapter number um, 16. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Sometimes we struggle. What does he mean by that? This is it. If you'll say, God, I can't do this. I am nothing. I admit I need you. And we lose ourselves in him, we will truly find who we were meant to be. Here's, here's his new perspective now. He walks out of there realizing that God is God. God is superior. God is in control and I'm not. And number two, I need to, in my life, surrender to what God has for me to do. Stop fighting God and surrender to his plan for my life. Look how this works out in Jacob's experience. The Bible goes on to say, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it's because I saw God face to face. He talks about his genuine encounter with God. Then he goes on, he said, and yet my life was spared. There's another picture of God's grace. God could have killed him. In fact, God maybe should have killed him after all of his cantankerousness, but he didn't. I met him, I wrestled with him, and God spared my life. He kept me living. But then notice how the story ends. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. I read one scholar that said that this was temporary, but most of the scholars would, would agree that from this point on in Jacob's life, he walked with a limp. Maybe he had to have a cane to help him as he moved because it was a constant reminder of this encounter with God in which he realized, I need to surrender it all. And he, his life was from that point on marked with this important 
point. I need to surrender to God. A lifelong reminder of an incredible wrestling match. I need to trust God with everything. So let me leave you with a personal question. Is my life marked by my surrender to God? Have you had a face-to-face, a genuine encounter with God that has forever changed your life? I'm not asking if you've been in church all your life. I'm asking, have you, have you realized your need for God and you came to him admitting your weakness and your sin and said, God, I need a new start and you received salvation that came through Jesus Christ who died on the cross? Have you met God and had your life changed? If you're a follower of his, and let me ask you this, are, are there areas right now that you're currently fighting with God? Maybe God showed you today, or you know what they are, that you are saying, God, I, I hear you, but I don't want to. Or God, that doesn't make sense to me, or I don't want to do this or that. The upper story, we have God working his plan. The lower story is it goes the, the way Jacob needed it to go when he was willing to surrender to God's plan. Here's my thought. you got to lay down the gloves you, you got to stop fighting God because he's got your best interest in mind. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heads bowed and eyes closed. What has God said to you today? What area is it that you need to say, God, I give up. I, I'm tired of fighting you, realizing you're not winning this battle and God has got your best interest in mind. Are you willing to say, God, here I am, whatever. If it's that point where you know you need a savior and you've been struggling, you've been fighting, you've even been putting that off because you just, for whatever reason, today, would you stop fighting God and say, God, I get it. I love you and I realize you love me and I want to receive your gift of salvation today. Or Christian, God's telling you to do something or to not to do something or he's moving in your life. Are you willing to say, God, I stop fighting. Here's a white flag, God, I surrender. Father, we love you, and I thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us this, this story, but it teaches us. It's a parable that teaches us also that we've got to stop struggling with you because you love us and you have your, our best interest in mind. So, Father, whatever that means in people's lives today, help them to see it and to follow you. If there's one here without salvation, please draw them to understand they need to come and admit themselves as sinners and to fall in your grace and say, God, save me. And as believers, we come, maybe it needs to repent, or we just say, God, I surrender this to you. Or maybe we just need to be encouraged to know that we don't have to be in control. And we just say, God, I believe you're, you're working in my life, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm not going to panic. But God, I'm going to trust you with my life today. Father, please speak to us. Encourage us, challenge us. In Jesus' name, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I don't know what you might need to talk to God about. You can do that right where you're seated, obviously. If you're lost, you can call out to him and say, God, I need a savior, forgive me. But I want to give you this time to come and pray. Maybe you need to want to come here and pray. There'll be some coming right now who'll be willing to pray with you. Or you can pray by yourself. Or you can... But I just want to take this time and let's, let's all wave the white flag as we leave and say, God, I surrender. It's all yours. Stop fighting. What does that mean for you? Chris is going to begin to sing, and as he does, 
I invite you to talk to the Lord and feel free to come and let's pray together here this morning. As Chris begins to sing, let God do what he wants to do in your heart and life today. Where there was death, you brought life, Lord. Where there was fear, you brought courage. When I was afraid, 